Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, and this week I'm joined by three Times columnists, Daniel Finkelstein, Jenny Russell, and David Aronovich. And unusually, I'm also joined by a live audience of Times readers in our London Bridge headquarters. Welcome to all of you. Please make a noise. <laughs> and in the usual way, Danny, can you tell us what your topic is? Why the Conservatives won? The Conservatives won because they had a more popular leader, people felt better off, and didn't want Labour and the SNP to be in control. The Conservatives ran an incredibly disciplined campaign that correctly was unimaginative. And the modernising argument that there were centre Liberal voters to be won has been vindicated. But if they want to keep the majority and build on it, there's much more to do. What should Cameron do with his majority? The choices that the Prime Minister makes over the next five years could not be more significant. We could end up with a riven, increasingly unequal Ruritania, which has lost Scotland, fallen out of the EU, and built its faltering recovery on the back of unnecessary austerity and brutal benefit cuts. The priority for David Cameron must be to deliver what he wishes for, compassionate conservatism, a thriving economy, a united kingdom, and Britain in Europe. But it will require monumental political skill to pull that off. Ah, Labour. Something closer, and it might have been possible to take refuge in a speech like Ed Miliband's resignation effort. We were on the right track. Let's just keep on. But this feels like 92 and not 79, after which, if you recall, the left won the argument about who was to blame for the disaster. Already, the heft of the critique comes from the centre. We need to be, it says, a very different party ideologically from the one Ed wanted. Of course, the big questions consequent upon that are these. What can Labour offer and to who? And who on earth can be their 2020 Blair? So let's, Danny, start with your topic. Now, we have sat down, I think, every Friday for most of the election campaign doing these podcasts, and both of us got it wrong, didn't we? We were quite pessimistic, and I certainly didn't think until 10 o'clock last Thursday that David Cameron was going to carry on as Prime Minister. I even then doubted the exit poll and and thought it wouldn't that be that big. And, of course, the exit poll understated the what we ended up with, which is a Tory majority. Well, you went further than me. I didn't, under, I didn't uh, mistake the exit poll. It's for this reason. When I, when I, I was on ITV when the exit poll um, was done, and I, they came to me a moment after they did it. And I said, in the light of the last few weeks, this result is a big surprise. But in the light of the last five years, it isn't remotely surprising. Every part of my analysis of politics said Ed Miliband would not become Prime Minister. And that if David Cameron positioned himself to the centre side of uh, Ed Miliband, if the economy was strong and people thought he was more Prime Ministerial, those basic things would mean that he would win the general election. The only thing that uh, made me doubt that was that the opinion polls seemed to suggest I was wrong. And there, came, there comes a point, however strongly you've put something in columns, however strongly I felt that it was 
the case that you have to accept the evidence suggests that you weren't right about it. And so I feel regretful that in the last few days, and as you know, in the last podcast that we did, uh, I succumbed to the view that Ed Miliband was going to become Prime Minister, despite one of my friends reminding me on polling day that Finkelstein's theory of politics was that he couldn't become Prime Minister. <laughs> David, there's so many people who got this election wrong. Um, Phil Collins, one of the Times columnists, was someone who steadfastly said... Steadfastly. Um, said that, um, in the face of all the evidence. In the face of all the evidence. And Matthew, I, Matthew Paris was another. Matthew Paris yes, wrote Matthew a column Paris a month ago a, saying a, the Tories will win well, and they'll win well. OK, but Matthew... Um, I, I describe... Uh, Matthew, with the last few days, um, did begin to think, look, the evidence... Yes. Now, this is either you, you think this is a... I've sort of said, is it a failure of character? It wasn't a failure of analysis on my part, but a failure of character, which is what I knew instinctively uh, was going to happen. I've begun to persuade myself wasn't because of the polls. But there's another way of looking at it, which is that only a bull-headed person who b believes in themselves above everything else would carry on thinking that you were going to win in the face of all the evidence that you weren't da going to. Dan so. is a typical Times columnist. In that he would prefer to be accused of a failure of character than a failure of analysis. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. This is to... Well, there's the worst thing in the world would be to be an overconfident idiot. It's much better to be, have it got to basically know what you're talking about but not be overconfident. And, and the difficulty with the polls is that speaking of somebody from the left, but who has quite frequently criticised Miliband's approach to the leadership and thought there were deep and fundamental flaws with it. You also do reach a point where you think that everything that you know and everything you encounter, which is people saying, I'm not convinced by him as a leader, or people within the Labour Party, peers, MPs, supporters, ex-aides, saying, we know they're going wrong, but they won't listen to us, and they're just a blind little cabal in the centre, and it's not Tony Blair's big tent, it's a shrunken centre, and we think it's the whole campaign is being run disastrously. That when you listen to those people, you just think, well, what use is this evidence of mine, which is just anecdotal, and it's just all the people I come across, against the weight, as, as Danny says, of the facts? And I think that one thing that's come out of this is that newspapers are never again going to place such trust in the polls. People are going to go much more by their traditional uh, understanding no, of we'll how now, politics no, works. We'll now make the mistake the other way. Yeah. Now, now what we'll do is we'll now believe that our instincts are better than whatever the poll says in the <laughs> future, and consequently, you'll have, we'll just betray our prejudices unless we're as sagacious as, uh, as Danny and Phil Collins um, and so on. But one of the things that we were talking about, uh, Danny and I, just before we came in here, was suppose that we had had a poll, a run of polls giving the eventual result, 38% to 30% roughly, right the way back in January, December, November, and so on, which is probably actually when that was all, in fact, happening. Well, according to okay. the Labour Party, who had their internal polls, they say the switchover towards the Tories actually happened last October. Their private polling apparently indicated that yeah. they're already pined so, from that time on. So let's continue with the thought. So suppose that we'd known in October that that was the polling. Now, one of the things that would Labour would have been in an incredibly difficult position to do was, are we going to carry on with this man? And this is absolutely catastrophic. It's, it's not much comfort to Labour Party members now to be told that their polling always sh showed right the way back then that Ed Miliband was regarded as a dick. You know, I mean... We don't have a bleeper button, by the way, to get rid of um, David and Robbie. Because one of the things we're doing is why the Labour Party lost, and that is a huge part of why. Let's look at why the Conservative Party won just for a second. Yeah, because this is incredibly important. So you had Owen Paterson, the former Cabinet Minister, on in the Sunday Times this, this weekend. And I should say that to all Times subscribers listening, if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, I'll link to Owen Paterson's piece and other articles uh, of background. But... 
Owen Padden's argument yeah. was the Tories won because they promised to cut taxes, to keep taxes right. down, to have a European referendum. Others, of course, are saying it was Cameron's modernising yeah. instinct. Mean, Others say it was um, to do with the targeting. It matters, this debate, yes, doesn't it? Because partly, when you have a small majority, it depends whether the right backbenchers, who would provide David Cameron's majority, feel emboldened, whether the Prime Minister thinks he carries on being a moderniser. Uh, Owen Paterson, in the uh, months before the general election, was attacking David Cameron for not being conservative enough. He cannot say, it was outrageous that he tried to say, that he won the victory by being conservative when he had attacked him for not being conservative enough. Um, so he just, um, in my view, ruled out that analysis. Da David Cameron won the election because the analysis that the Conservatives could win votes from Liberals by um, not by, by being seen as a party that captured the broad centre in, in the crudest way. There are lots of more pieces to the analysis. That analysis has been vindicated. Last time it was I've got to come back on you, Danny, sure. because also lots of Liberal Cameroons have been in, in despair for a long time, talking about a Crosbyisation of the Conservative no, well, Party, not, that it's become much too hard and tough, okay, and well, lack I didn't, of sunny uplands. So, I did, you know, there's, I it is more complicated. No, I, did, I felt that the campaign, I mean, I was asked during the campaign, I thought the campaign was disciplined, because being deciding you're going to become a broad centre uh, party that takes in, that is party of the centre-right as, well as, uh, as, as well as the right, uh, doesn't mean that you can be ill-disciplined and talk about things that people have no interest in, which is what they did in 2010, and trying to invite people to run their own pub. You know, you concentrate on the issue, the mainstream issues that people care about. And so I was totally in favour of Linton Crosby, his appointment and all the things that he did. But that the, the Conservative Party won the election because Ed, people thought Ed Miliband was a threat to, 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 to the David Cameron's basically prime ministerial moderation. Now, they, that doesn't mean that it's not much further they have to go. It doesn't mean it was perfect. It doesn't mean people had great enthusiasm. But he won, really, a very big election victory as a result of something that people said was wrong, and I think it was vindicated. Jenny Russell, is that right, or would actually David Cameron have a majority now if Labour hadn't collapsed in Scotland and English voters were fearful of the SNP holding the balance of power? Was that the decisive factor in this election outcome? I think it mattered very much, the SNP attack. Um, I was talking to somebody a week before the election, a Labour supporter who lives in a rented home, who was telling me that four or five of her friends who were undecided about how to vote had switched from wavering Labour to Tory because of the SNP threat. It was one of those straws in the wind, which was quite remarkable. But I think the problem for Labour and the reason that Cameron won um, go deeper than policy. I think that... Um, there's lots of evidence now to show that people trust leaders basically instinctively and instantly on whether they think they are commanding and competent. There's a fascinating bit of research done in America a few years ago where five-year-old children were given pairs of photographs and asked, if you were about to cross on a stormy sea, which of these men would you choose as the captain of your boat? 71% of those primary school children chose the successful candidate in a congressional race. So this instantaneous judgment that was being made about, is this somebody that you would follow? Is this somebody that you would have trust in? And I'm afraid that um, much as some of us who wished Ed Miliband to grow into that role were wishing him well, he never did. And the British public could not believe in him as a leader. And that, plus his left-wing policies, which basically said, here's somebody very untried who's going to take the country on a journey into radicalism when you've no idea what the consequences of his policies would be. I think that was very off-putting to a lot of people who wished to believe in some alternative to the Tories.
the, 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 the old truism, David, is that oppositions don't win elections, governments well, lose them. Was this an election where actually the opposition did lose it? Or, you what, know, what's what, your what, assessment? What Danny said earlier was, abs was absolutely right, which was your instinct, or rather your past experience, fought the evidence of the opinion poll. So what was that kind of instinct composed of? It was composed of two things. Firstly, the perception which actually did come through, after all, in the polling evidence, which was that David Cameron was far more trusted by people to run Britain than Ed Miliband. Well, that's a pretty important distinction, really, if you think about it. Uh, and the second was that the uh, uh, narrative that the Conservatives had, we are beginning to pull out of this, don't let anyone mess it up, was a much more powerful narrative than that which was opposite. I mean, it was difficult for any opposition under these circumstances. Uh, what you had to have done was launch a much more successful assault on the government's competence during the five years while mm. it was in, and laid out a very much better kind of notion that you would actually be more competent when you came in. Instead, what Labour Party left people feeling was, quite a lot of, the, of its supporters was, I'll be worse off if they get in. Mm. It's really as simple as that. Um, I'll be worse off if I'll they get in. I'll be worse off to and no I, good purpose. And, yeah, and, and to no good That was purpose. what people felt. And to no good so purpose. So there are really basically there are three election campaigns you can run. It's time for a change. It's better the devil you know. And Britain's on the right track. Don't turn back. But you can't run it's time for a, a change if there isn't a change mood. Uh, and the, the change mood wasn't strong enough. It's better the devil you know because I've run that campaign for John Major. You usually get tanked in a landslide. <laughs> I mean, did win in 92 against Neil Kinnock. And the Conservative Party, in a very disciplined way, ended up landing at the exactly the right moment on Britain's on the right track, i.e. we haven't got there yet, don't turn back, Ed Miliband and the SNP are a threat. The SNP thing wouldn't have worked without the first half, without people thinking that Britain was very broadly on the right track. Now, what you and I have discussed is people don't think that enough. One of the reasons why the Conservative Party only won a majority of 12 rather than a majority of you know, 50 or more than that is because lots of people didn't feel the recovery. They thought the Conservative Party was yeah. not for them, but just for the well-off. You know, some of Labour's themes did actually have resonance. So yeah. it didn't, but um, not enough of them. And the Conservative Party's camp, you know, for everything that's been said about David Cameron didn't win a majority last time, he's not politically competent, this election campaign was completely ruthless and very successful. And we should also just say one more thing, really, because this is in the minor key. Five million people voted for parties that got two seats between them. Mm. Up in Scotland, with a, uh, the SNP managed to get all but three seats with just under 50% of the vote, i.e. 95% of the seats or whatever it is. Yeah. Now, of course, the Conservatives are never going to want to change the voting system and so on, but there's every good reason why everybody else should want to. Yeah, but well, I did. don't want to get into discussion about electoral reform, but we will come back to that um, on, a, on another occasion. In I want to move on to, to, to Jenny's um, topic. So the Conservatives now have their majority, and you paint two pictures of the next five years. One, where potentially Britain leaves the European Union, the Union falls apart, there's massive austerity, or alternatively, David Cameron rides into the uh, sunny uplands with a compassionate One Nation message, and um, he changes the boundaries, which gives the Tories 20 extra seats, devolves to England, protects the Conservative majority for a very long time. Do yeah. you have a prediction rather than just painting these two pictures? I have a hope, and, and, that, and the hope is the latter one. I'm not a Europe outer, but I think that David Cameron's words, as he stood in Downing Street on Friday morning, were genuine. I think he does wish for the country to stay in Europe. I think he wishes that there should be one nation. I think he wants Scotland to stay, and I think he is a compassionate Conservative. How on earth he can deliver that 
given the promises that his party made in the manifesto. If you're going to deliver 12 billion pounds of welfare cuts, then all the analysis by the Institute for Fiscal Studies shows that that isn't going to hit the people who are popularly thought of as shirkers. It's going to hit all the low-paid people who, who are trying hard. You're going to be taxing carers' benefits, that anyone whose partner has got any kind of income is not going to end up being given it. You're going to tax disability payments. You're going to be hitting the low-paid people who get housing benefit because they don't earn enough to pay their rent. But my God, they're working and striving. So if he's to do that, that's going to cause immense damage. If he's going to deliver the austerity cuts that he promises, then you're going to end up with all the unprotected government departments being hit by another 30 to 40% in cuts. And local authorities are going to be hit as well. That means parks, swimming pools, libraries, public spaces, all those things that we all depend on, but the bottom half of the population depends on even more because they can't opt out of those things. So there's a possibility that we end up with a really riven country. But if David Cameron can somehow mute those welfare cuts, slow down austerity, as he and George Osborne actually did in the last parliament, they didn't fulfill their promises. If he can manage to both keep the Tory right on... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...side through the Euros, European negotiations and get the country to vote to stay in. And if he can persuade the Scots, after a very divisive campaign, which was all about Conservative advantage, that actually the Conservatives do care about keeping them in the Union and that they will offer them as much Devo Max as they want in order to stay then he could pull off a sort of remarkable renaissance. But this is really going to test the character of the man and his will. I don't know whether he can do those things. I hope to goodness he can. Danny, how much do you think of the things that were put in the Tory manifesto, like the £12 billion welfare cuts, like the right to buy (coughs) policy, like the replacement of the Human Rights Act, the Conservative leadership actually expected to trade away in coalition talks. And actually, they've got a Tory manifesto. They didn't actually expect to have to fully implement. uh, There's no question that that's the case. So this is definitely their opening hand in a bidding process. But I think the three things that you mentioned are of different, uh, have a different uh, quality. So I think um, when you talk about things like the Human Rights Act, 
I think a lot of people, as it so happens, I'm in fact a sceptic of the Conservative Party's policy on the, on the uh, sceptic of their policy on the Human Rights Act, but um, I don't think they'll have a problem with the public on it. I think the question of how you schedule austerity, though, is a different matter. Mm. Uh, and you just have to listen to what Jenny said and to think about how David ha Cameron handles political problems and how he's handled them over the last five years to know the answer to the question you've just asked. Um, you know, uh, in other words, Obviously, logically, they're not going to do these things as rapidly as they said they were going to do because it's problematic to do them and no one cares whether they do them that rapidly uh, as long as they do them. The answer is in David Cameron's record. One power, again, because in addition to having a sense of direction, he's also a pragmatist and I think he'll demonstrate that clearly in the next uh, period of government. Are you, are you a pessimist or an optimist about the next five years, David? I, I, I found the, the, the... I mean, I thought that... Jenny summed it all up brilliantly. Um, Thank uh, you. We don't the, always get compliments. And all the tasks, <laughs> uh, and all the tasks that they have. Um, they could be the last. Um, but it's a very interesting thing that Danny's effectively just said, because, I mean, Danny is not just a columnist, but he's somebody who knows a lot of very important people. Um, and he does actually talk to them, and he knows what they... He genuinely does know what uh, a lot of them are thinking. Well, Lord Finkelstein, now. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Admiral Finkelstein. <laughs> um, so, but, what, but, essentially, <laughs> but essentially what he said in there is they're hoping that growth will get them out of the problem. Um, essentially, we won't, the growth will be sufficient so that we don't actually have to be as austere as quickly or for as long or as deeply as we said we were going to have to be. And so, well, if that's true, you're not going to find anybody in the electorate saying, no, we'd like more austerity. That's absolutely true. Nobody's going to say that. I mean, there might be, I mean, Patterson and one other person might say it, but nobody else is going to say it. If it's not true, of course, if actually it gets us into some kind of economic difficulty, then that, that's, a, that's a problem. But it's yeah. a problem kind of five years down the But what it does mean, funnily enough, is that you could have the Conservatives adopting something which is not completely unlike Ed Balls's plan for the economy. In actual fact, the well, thing that was supposed to be the most disastrous, <laughs> short no, of some the, of the problem, The there. problem with Ed Balls's plan is that he didn't, he wasn't clear that he was going at the end point to end up with a surplus, um, and that's absolutely a critical thing. So they, they, the government has to end up with, I, these are my own views, not anybody else's, but the government has to end up with a surplus at the next general election, um, but it, uh, it doesn't have to tie itself to the cross, I think, and the, one of the things that the Labour Party failed in this election was to hammer, was to force the Conservative Party into a position where it had to. No, right? I, so, and I, and so I just don't think Danny, you should, I don't I don't think think you should nail yourself I don't think you should nail yourself I to the government. I think effectively said the government doesn't actually have to end up with a surplus by the next election. I think it does. I mean, it but might have to be trending to in that. that direction, but it doesn't actually have no, to be. There was no penalty, really, for George Oswald missing his deficit targets in the Nobody last part. Can I just point out... Are you promising us, in front of this live audience, Danny, that if George Oswald misses his target and doesn't well, deliver a surplus. We will have a column okay. from you talking about George Oswald's failure. I think to he should one. hit a surplus. I'm not promising to write a column on anything. But, the, um, but, but I think he should make a surplus. But, but the, it's a critical thing. At the last general election, what the Conservative Party actually promised was to, uh, was to make a substantial inroad into, uh, substantially clear, I think was the phrase, the, um, the structural deficit. The promise to, uh, to, re to remove the structural deficit altogether in a single parliament was made after the general election. I make this point not because to sort of say the promise was right or wrong, but to say there's actually a substantial amount of flexibility that you have uh, mm -hmm. once you've set the basic direction on what you put in the Red Book and what people say and what people think that you've said. And in fact, people didn't punish... It's very funny you say people didn't punish 
them, him for not making his deficit target. They also, he didn't even set that deficit target. People are not that aware, basically, of what exactly it was people said. People have elected the government to not muck up the economy, uh, to keep the economy on the right track, to, to end the deficit where we're spending a fortune okay. on, on debt. And as long as they do that, they'll be fine. Okay, we're going to move on to our third and final topic, which is yours, um, David. And I get the impression that out of this defeat for Labour, you, looking at the Labour Party, they've begun to react quite well to that defeat. We've had the likes of Peter Mandelson going on TV saying, go back to a revitalisation of new Labour, not its abandonment. And most commentators, Andy Burnham perhaps is the exception, and some of the trade union leaders, do seem to have the yeah. same diagnosis. I mean, Peter Mandelson said exactly what you'd expect him to say, and I'm not entirely sure uh, old friend though he is of mine that that many people in Labour are particularly listening to him except as a representative from an era when Labour actually won things and the first thing we just have to re-establish is the scale of the defeat uh, Labour's ended up with about five more seats I think it is than Michael Foote did in 1983 that's how bad it is and although a substantial amount of that was Scotland um, there were Labour seats lost on 2010 in this last election, including one or two that are incredibly painful. Look at Southampton Itchin, where one of the great young hopes of the Labour Party was defeated in a Labour seat. Uh, and so that gives you... That gives you so it's, a, it's crushing. Now, it was always possible, if the defeat had been less crushing, that somebody like Andy Burnham could have appeared and said, look, I'm the kind of person who believes in Labour values and I have these connections with the trade unions and I'm very northern and what you need is a northern person because we've had all these Oxford PPs... Ed Miliband with a popular one, touch, if you like. Uh, yes, exactly. So I could be... Yeah, exactly. I could be Milibandism except, uh, except attractive yeah, yeah. and with long eyelashes. Uh, uh, and, <laughs> and without Miliband's brain, it must be said. I mean, Miliband has a brain. Like, like what he did with it or not... I I don't think Andy Burnham has that quality of thinking. Yeah, brains in leaders are always a kind of variable virtue. Um, really? You know, whether or not I they... Like whether, or not, whether or not... Well, you, actually, you get some incredibly good political leaders who are not big intellectuals. And one of the things that's always said about some of the most successful political leaders is they're insufficiently intellectual. Usually said by intellectuals, it has to be said, but nevertheless is said about But them. I don't think we're going to find Andy Burnham fact, in that category. I don't think we are. So one of the questions is, can they knock out Andy Burnham at an early stage? Firstly, by declaring him to be too pre-2010, which is a kind of rather dishonest manoeuvre in order to kind of do, get somebody out and so on, but you know what they're talking about. But coming back to your question, so it was the other candidates, it was the Liz Kendalls, it was the Tristram Hunts, it was the Chuka Amunas, it was the other people like Pat McFadden's and so on, getting in there very quickly and saying essentially what was Labour code for, see all those Tory voters, we should be winning them, and we're not going to win them if we just go on and on on how, how dreadful the bedroom tax is. Mm. Uh, and we're not going to do it on a, in a hugely defensive position about even about things like the National Health Service. We actually have to talk a bit about the future and what we're going to do and the real problems we're going, we're going to solve. Now, the question is, what in detail do those things, will they begin to consist of? Well, we won't even begin to find out for about six months or so. And then the second question, and probably the more important immediate one, do any of these people have the combination of skills which would be necessary to be that person who could be so successful that they could in one, not one, almost impossible, two elections overturn a result like this okay. one. Jenny, does any of the potential candidates excite you or inspire you at the moment as a close watcher of the Labour Party? If I 
was going along to Ladbrokes today and, and asked were the, the three candidates that I like. Tristram, other, book, Tristram other bookmakers are available. Oh, sorry, other bookmakers, anything you like. <laughs> sorry, I never bet. We're so not sponsored by Ladbrokes. I never bet, so that's the only one that comes to mind. Um, Tristram, Chuka, Liz, I think they are all um, very promising in various ways. I can't see at the moment that it's evident that any of them have the combination of public appeal, experience, toughness, fresh ideas that would take Labour to victory at the next election. I think they're in, an, in a dire state. And Tristram, on the one hand, you could argue that he might appeal to the kinds of people that Blair appealed to because he's a private school posh boy who nevertheless believes in the Labour Party, so he may in that sense be very reassuring. On the other hand, what's he going to say when confronted with tough Scottish voters who've shifted to the SNP or the northern left-behind working class who are inclined to vote UKIP. Liz Kendall is um, an undoubted independent thinker and she's challenged her own party when she was shadow health minister and Andy Burnham was waxing lyrical and indeed overly sentimental about the NHS. She came out and said, I believe in what works. And she's very practical, but she's very untried. She's not even in the shadow cabinet. And would she have what it took to run an absolutely ribbon, fractured, despairing party and take out a public message? None of us know that yet. And Chukaramuna is um, immensely talented. He's a good performer. But none of us have seen any evidence that Chuka has thought deeply about what should happen to the Labour Party. Very good in a television interview, but has he thought beneath the surface? Not apparent to me. And so I'm not that optimistic about the future because I think, it's, I think we're in a situation absolutely akin to the Tories when they lost in 97. I think it's going to take the Labour Party a very, very long time to work out what it's for. And I think the Tories are highly likely to win the next election. Danny, you, you were there alongside William Hague in 1997 yeah. after that historic defeat. Did you know how long then it was probably yeah. going to be for the Conservatives to come well, back? And would you have pursued, were you able to pursue a strategy that could get the Tories in the right position long term? Or did you feel all the pressures upon you, you had to win the next election and that meant the strategy that you pursued okay. wasn't the ideal well, one? In, in 1907, I remember the first Shadow Cabinet Minister uh, meeting that took place after the election. And Michael Heseltine, everyone started talking about some debate that was taking place and what the Conservative Party should do. And Michael Heseltine just said, I think we should all calm down. We're all going to be here for a very long time. <laughs> and uh, you knew instinctively that he was correct. Although the position was even worse for the Conservative Party. We had 165 members of Parliament, for example. That's good to remember. Um, even and, worse. And it was even, it was even worse than this, although this is bad for, because it's sort of more complicated, as it were, for Labour. So we did know that it was very bad. Uh, the, the problems that the Conservative Party had were twofold. One is that I think there was quite a failure of analysis after 97. So quite a lot of people in the party thought that John Major had lost because he'd been insufficiently robust. That's your right. Uh, and um, he'd therefore been pushed all over the place. And then other people thought it was necessary to modernise, and William Hague sort of agreed with that, uh, but he didn't have the base in the party and the authority to have it. And so he was torn between a sort of Tory instinct <coughs> he had, what I used to call Rotherham William Hague and INSEAD William Hague, and he could never decide which of those he was. Uh, you know, and I was for like working for INSEAD William Hague, really. And um, he ultimately couldn't resolve that. And so therefore we didn't, we made no progress at all in that period. I do though remember after the um, 2001 election and before 2005, having a series of, of dinners over pizza, basically with George Osborne and with David Cameron, with Michael Gove and Nick Bowles. And discussing He's not showing off, it's really true. No, no, this is, it's important because, because the, the characters were there because we were trying to solve the problem. What do you do 
about the Conservative Party. And the analysis then became absolutely clear. The previous idea that the party hadn't been right-wing enough was obviously not correct. And the analysis dropped out. It was absolutely clear. The problem was, how did you actually make the party do that? And immediately after the 2005 election, <coughs> David Cameron just said, I'm going to run for the leadership. And at the time, it seemed absolutely bananas. You thought he has got no chance of winning the leadership. But actually, that was the only solution. You have to have somebody who embodies a prime ministerial quality and who accepts your basic um, analysis. And the problem for the Labour Party is, with the possible exception of Liz Kendall, whom I simply don't know enough about, I'm not sure they have the David Cameron. Unfortunately for the party, Ed Miliband presided over this tiny little insular group and they didn't want to listen to everyone in the party who wanted to help them. Now, so many voices are coming out. So there's such goodwill towards a new Labour leader and there's so many people who are experienced in politics who'd really like to combine to work with whoever that new leader is that I'm actually slightly more optimistic than except, I'm sounding. Except because for the unions. Except for the unions. Except from the unions. I mean, the, the, unions really are, are, the unions are a terrible drag on this. But there are a lot of people who are wanting to take part in the debate now who felt absolutely excluded from where the party was going over the last four and a half years. Because even if they got in touch with the leader's office and said, please, can I come and talk to you about business or welfare or, or Europe or the okay. unions, then the answer was, no thanks, we've got it sorted, go away. Um, we have to finish, but I want to give you a uh, put a final question to you, David. Um, what happens to Ed Miliband now? I'm quite interested what happens to that Ed Stone that he crafted before <laughs> polling day. But what happens to Ed Miliband? William Hague, Michael Howard, Ian Duncan Smith, the Tory leaders that served during the opposition years, you know, they, they've come back in different forms. No, you, 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 what happens to Miliband? You join you the living dead. That's literally what you do. You become a zombie for the five years of the parliament. He's actually said, I'm willing to serve. Mm. But I think it's... And actually, you could conceive of it. So Alec Douglas Hume being the famous former Prime Minister who everybody thought was... Actually, they thought he was dead when he was Prime Minister. <laughs> and sorry, he looked corpse-like. Turned out to be a very effective Foreign Secretary in the Heath government of 1970-74. So he could conceivably do it uh, mm. and expect... But actually, in fact, I think the failure has been so absolutely complete and his association with it so total that, frankly, if you had those two jobs... Of a, you had two people available for that job, one was Ed Miliband, and I don't know, one was somebody who hadn't done anything in their entire lives but looked rather kind of fresh-faced. Do you give it to the fresh-faced person? Okay, we, 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 we have to stop there, I'm afraid, because we've probably overrun our normal time limit a little bit. But uh, David, Jenny, Danny, thank you very much. I shall thank my producer, Dave Maguire, who puts this podcast together every week. Thank you most of all to the audience for coming to... London Bridge. Unfortunately, those of you listening can't appreciate the views that we have. It's a beautiful day here in London, and on the 17th floor of our headquarters, there are magnificent views of London. You will have to come to Times Plus events in future. And we are actually, we're going to stop this podcast now, but if you want to tune in over the next 24 hours, you'll actually be able to listen to our audience asking our panelists a few questions. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you.